0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 385 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to watch previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see them all organized in four or five different ways. Uh, this show is made possible by the support of appreciative viewers and listeners, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, uh, there's a donate button on the site and a donate page which explains all that in greater detail. My guest today is Brian Yosef Schachter Brooks. He's a Jewish spiritual teacher, musician, and founder of Torah of Awakening. He has taught this Jewish path of presence to hundreds of students throughout the world through workshops, retreats, and his online program. He also served as clergy and sacred music director at, and here we go, this is a hard to pronounce thing, and Brian and I were practicing <laughs> it, but bear with me. He served as music director at, uh, yeah, you say it, Brian, come on. Okay. Hochma <laughs> <laughs> There you go. I could, never could have done it. Say it again. <laughs> Halev. Okay. And that's the name of a synagogue in Berkeley, California. He served as music director there from 2000 through 2016. Um, he received Smicha, organism... Smicha. Sorry. I'm hopeless. Ordination no, really. as minister of sacred music from Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi, 2013. Uh, spiritual teacher from Rabbi Saraleya... Schley and Sheikh Ibrahim Baba Farajee, 2013, and Jewish meditation teacher from Dr. Avram Davis, 2004. He holds a Bachelor in Music from the Eastman School of Music, 1991, and he lives in Tucson, Arizona with his wife Lisa and their two children. So, thank you, yeah. Brian.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be on this show. I've enjoyed it for many years and it was such a delight to get the email uh, inviting me to be on this show. So I just want to make you a blessing for you and for your family and all those wonderful people I know that are working on this show, that it should continue in success and help a lot of seekers and practitioners gain more useful tools for their practice and their awakening.
0: Well, that's our intention and I hope we're doing that. according to the feedback we get, we're, we're doing that to some extent. So I appreciate it. I think, I so, think so, yeah. We're yeah. yeah. a as we as say. say. In a way, I'm a very unqualified person to interview you because I don't really know much about Judaism, but maybe that makes me more qualified because I'll ask all kinds of questions that other people who don't know much about it would ask, and that'll be helpful for them. I think so. I was thinking we might start... I've read uh, the first few chapters of a book that you're working on, and in the first chapter, I believe it was, you you tell a very kind of interesting story of your own, the course of your own seeking. And uh, I think that might be an interesting way of starting because it would give people a, a sense of who you are and, and how you've arrived at, at where, you're, where you're at at this point. You mm-hmm. want to do that? Sure. So uh, where would you like to start in that story?
1: Well... I could start with. I could start in childhood if you if if that seems good to you. Sure. <laughs> I'm 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 open. Yeah. Uh, you can cut me off any time.
0: I will. I'll probably ask <laughs> questions as we go through it.
1: Okay. Well, for some reason that I I can't explain, spiritual stuff always really kind of drew me. So I was looking at all kinds of books. Is when I was old enough to go and go to the mall by myself, you know, take the take the bus down to the mall and go to the bookstore there. I would go right to the esoteric section, and I was always getting books on witchcraft or Western occultism or Eastern stuff, and <clears throat> and I didn't have any formal religion in my house. So much we had, um, you know, we did Hanukkah, and that's about it. But I had some cousins and aunt and uncle that we would go to for Passover, and when we would go there, um, I had such a visceral feeling that there was something there that was drawing me, some kind of. But it, but at the same time, it seemed like it was a mystery or a light that was hidden in some way, you know, almost like like I had a sense. Probably most of the people at the table weren't necessarily sensing the same thing I was, but my uncle, my uncle Howard, who uh, now goes by Chaim, would really engage me and have conversations with me, sometimes for hours, and he was one of the few adults that I can remember that would really talk to me about this kind of stuff, um, since I was a little kid, you know, that's not a usual thing for adults to do. Mm -hmm. So, it just drew me, and I developed this seeking particularly with regard to the Jewish tradition. And so as I got older and I learned about different ideas of spiritual awakening, um, I learned Transcendental Meditation when I was 12. Um, My father, who's a a holistic doctor in New York, was interested in it because of, mostly because of its health benefits, Mm -hmm. and um, so he paid for the whole family to learn Transcendental Meditation. So I started doing meditation regularly when I was 12 years old, and I was also Looking at Aleister Crowley stuff and uh, other Western occultism things, um, and kind of doing rituals by myself and meditations <laughs> by myself. You know, my freaking my parents out. You know, my I was called into, my parents were called into school a few times because of concerns that the teachers had about the strange magic books I was reading. And um, um, but at some point, um, actually, it was uh, a friend of mine. Uh, His parents invited me to go to Europe with him when I was in junior high school. And when we were there, I came across a lot of books that kept making reference to something called the Tree of Life and something called Kabbalah. And it was at that point that I realized that a lot of the non-Jewish Western spiritual materials that I was checking out were actually rooted in Judaism um, in a certain way. At least one stream of it was rooted in Judaism. That kind of took me back to wanting to really investigate this thing that had been exciting me since I was very young, but I didn't know very much about, which was the Passover Seder at my cousin's. And at the same time, my father had a partner at that time, who he passed away, he was killed in a plane crash in 1983. Um, but before that, he was studying with a very famous uh, rabbi and scholar of Kabbalah named Aryeh Kaplan, and this was in uh, in Rockland County, New York, in Muncie. And My father's partner, who is Dr. David Shankin, was learning with Arya Kaplan and then starting to teach his own courses on Kabbalah, which were being recorded. And after he passed away, they needed to, uh, Xerox the transcripts of all of these Kabbalah lectures that he gave, and I was working at my dad's office, so I was given the job to xerox all this stuff. So I'm supposed to be xeroxing the manuscripts, and you know, people would come in to check up on me, see how oh, I'm doing, it. and I'm just sitting there, like, <laughs> 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 reading the stuff, you know. So that's a little taste of it. I mean, of course, there's a lot more. I don't know if you want me to go further. Well, I but- think
0: it's cool that you were so serious at such a young age. I mean, some a lot of people I interview were and I, I think that's an interesting correlation you know in in my own case i wasn't I was aside from a few little profound experiences looking at the stars when I was a kid or something i was pretty frivolous you know and didn't kind of wise up until I was about eighteen, so I'm always a little bit envious mm. of people like you who kind of caught on to it in a younger
1: age and i'm and I'm envious of people who were really motivated to uh practice music since a really young age, yeah because i i mean i've uh, music, of course, is something else that's going on with me, but I'm really aware of how, you know, you, we we really develop whatever we're passionate about based on how much time we put into it. Yep. Um, you know, someone look. gave me a book recently about that that was really just talking about how outliers. It, yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, yeah maybe that was it. Mal- Malcolm um,
0: Gladwell he, he talks about yeah. how the Beatles and Bill Gates and people like that put in at least ten thousand hours. You know. Of, of, yes. Yeah.
1: That's right. the book that I'm talking about. Yeah. So it's not intentional but we tend to be drawn to things, you right. know, and, and then the more at the more hours we put into it it starts to bear fruit. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: On the other hand, we sort of do the best we can, you know. Uh, not, yeah, no, oh, I mean yeah.
1: absolutely absolutely there's plenty of other things besides spirituality that I'm still, you know, just doing the best I can and I'm never gonna be expert at it, but um, nevertheless, it's good to continue to grow and, um, you know, not just be completely one track, which is what my tendency is.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Diversified. Um, yeah. So there was a story in your book about sort of a, a series of events leading up to a rather profound shift that you had, uh, or you might call it an awakening. Want, let's let's talk about that. Why don't you recount that?
1: Okay. Um, So, I think that, I don't remember when the idea of spiritual awakening kind of became a concept in my mind, but I know throughout my teen years and before that, I had a sense that there was something like that. Mm -hmm. So I I knew about it, and it was part of what was motivating me with all the spiritual studies and also the meditation I was doing. and. I think I had certain ideas in my head about what it meant, because of course when we read a description of something that we haven't experienced, we tend to develop some idea of what that is, and it's either attractive or not. But at a certain point when I was 18, I was just spending time with a friend of mine. Uh, It was kind of, the I think it was in August, the summer between high school and going away to college, and we were having a spiritual conversation which later I learned just just the technique of having a spiritual conversation like what we're doing right now is actually a, a technique that's affirmed in many different traditions. But we didn't know that. We were just talking about it. And our conversation kind of wandered into the biblical legends of Moses and the burning bush and freeing the Israelites from slavery. And it just started sparking stuff within us about how... That story is actually talking about something real that's uh, directly relatable to how we approach how we approach this life that we 're living mm. and um, and something happened to us. The remarkable thing is it wasn 't just me; it was both of us at the same time uh, i've never experienced anything like that ever again, um, but it was as if we both caught fire mm. at the same time and we both were crying and hugging, which is totally bizarre for high school boys. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, like ten minutes later, we would have been like making fun of ourselves. You know? it's just ridicu- ridiculous. You yeah, know, like here.
0: that that scene in uh, trains, planes, and automobiles with uh, John Candy and and uh, and what's his name? <laughs> anyway, I won't go into the scene, but go on. I have
1: to. I know that I saw that movie, but I have to go back because I can't remember yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, and the way that we were saying it verbally to each other was, this is it. You just have to live for God. Yeah. That's it. You know, and there wasn't, there wasn't the concept of what the word God meant wasn't getting in the way. You know, we didn't have any shared, we weren't religious people, we, we didn't have some shared dogma or ideology about what God is or anything like that. It was just more that the stories themselves awakened something in us through the conversation, and we tapped into what it meant to be just living from this place of uh, pure openness and love, that's a way to say it, you know, um, kind of letting go of all the different ways that we get stuck. So there was a real experience of freedom from all that personal mishigas, you know, that we all tend to experience. and it was, and it was something that lasted, you know, for a period of time, but not. It it didn't last forever. It was kind of, it was, it was kind of like a bomb, you know. And then, the, and then the the sound sort of faded over the next few weeks, and then after some amount of time, I don't know, month or whatever, um, I was just left with a memory of it. Mm.
0: But it was obviously a genuine thing, not just an idea, because you know, it wouldn't have lasted a month, it would have lasted 10 minutes if it were just some philosophical insight or something. There's some, some obvious experiential shift going on there.
1: Yeah, it changed the way I was interacting with everything. It was it changed the way I was living, but it also had a confusing effect because my, my memory of it is that I had the sense that if I wanted to really stay in it and continue it, Um, I had to kind of just renounce everything, like literally everything. Like I had to just not go to college, but also not really do anything. Like I had to just walk out the door and just start walking and trust. Hmm. And that was it. And, and I wasn't going to do that. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, so, and, and of course later I realized that's, well, that's a way of life for many people in India. That's a, that's an actual respected, um, and known, uh, Practice that many people engage with—that they want to just free themselves from all of the entanglements of ordinary uh, c- civilized life and culture and so on—they become wan- wandering um, mendicants or whatever that yeah. we call it. I interviewed um, a guy so I- who
0: did that. He, he had a, like a successful printing company in Australia, and so he had this epiphany. And he he literally took his shoes off and just started walking. <laughs> yeah, and he walked for years around Australia without you know the clothes on his back basically.
1: And it was successful for him. Worked out for it's him, good. yeah. But. That's great. It's funny because I later met somebody who said that he did that and it wasn't successful. He said that he. Um, because he wasn't doing it as a result of an epiphany, he was doing it as a technique. Right, right. And so he decided, okay, I'm going to try this and see what happens, but it just kind of, you know, it just created its own entanglements.
0: Yeah, for you read, you read um, about somebody like Peace Pilgrim, if you're familiar with her, and she was, able yes. to, she was able to do what she did by virtue of her enlightened consciousness, and, yes, you know, don't yes. don't try this at home, basically.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I mean, in some ways, I think you know, I wonder, well, what if I had really just done that at that point? Mm. Things probably would have gone very differently. But instead, I just um, continued living regular life, and as it faded, I became interested in like, well, how can I is it possible to bring that consciousness into an ordinary, cultural, civilized life as opposed to having to renounce everything? Because if you have to renounce everything, then, you know, what good is it for most people then? Yeah. That was my thinking, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: And yeah. you'd already been meditating for, what, eight years or something by that time, and, or six, six yeah. years? And You know, so that yeah. that obviously had had an effect, and um, it, right. it, it may have even been conducive to the, the shift or the, the epiphany you had. Um, yeah,
1: actually, I want to say something about that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I was doing lots of different types of meditation, but as I said, I learned uh, TM, which I know is uh, kind of native to your town uh, that uh, you're in, is that Yeah, that? and
0: I was a teacher of it for 25 years, so I know a bit oh, wow. about it. Okay.
1: Yeah. So, okay, so yeah. there you go. So then um, so you'll know what I'm talking about. I had a certain experience with that, mm-hmm. which is that um, I read the book by Maharishi. Uh, the main—I don't know if there's how many there are—but there was one main book that that was
0: science of I, being and art of living, probably.
1: Yeah, maybe it was that one.
0: Yeah. Um, he also did a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, but but go on.
1: That one I didn't see. Yeah, okay. I, I saw uh, Swami Satchitananda's commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, which I loved. Mm-hmm. But um, but anyway, one of the things that it said in there was that if you meditate, if you just do the practice then very naturally, this the, the potential for enlightened consciousness will, um, will begin to just make its way into your life. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it, you just have to do the practice, and it'll happen over time. Mm-hmm. It's just a gradual di- it talks about dipping into it and so on. Right. And w- the effect that that had on me, just that as a concept, is that it put the idea of enlightenment in my head as something that was going to happen after I practiced enough
0: uh-huh.
1: it was very it's very interesting you know and it's not that that's not true, but one of the effects of that experience that I had when I was eighteen was that I realized in that moment that that was a wrong concept because it was because it was becoming an excuse, so that as I lived life, every time I was making a decision to you know maybe it's a decision to uh you know grasp after something or to be not nice to somebody or whatever it is you know so or to just be you know caught in whatever was arising whatever Michiganigo was arising um, I didn't perceive the choice in those moments because instead i would I would say to myself, oh after I've meditated longer, I'll be more enlightened, and this won't bother me anymore, but right now this is where I'm at and the, that experience taught me that actually, no, like the, the time, the, the crucial time is always in the present. Mm-hmm. And that, that doesn't mean that we can somehow instantly transform whatever level we're at. I mean, of course, we're all at a certain level. But nevertheless, there, are, there is something that's available in the moment which is uh, very important to, um, it's actually the most important thing yeah. to kind of realize and engage with and have that inform everything you're doing and choosing, as opposed to saying, as opposed to having this concept of I'll be enlightened later after I've practiced enough.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting consideration, and and I'm glad you're approaching it in in a subtle way, uh, because on the one hand, some people say this thing of oh, we're all already enlightened, you're already enlightened, just just realize that, just accept that, and you're done, you know? That kind of thing, right. which is sort of absurd, really, uh, in, right. li- in light of what right. we see as possible in, 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 in the example of some very great, obviously genuinely, genuinely enlightened people. Um, but right. that, on the other hand, there's the sort of the dangling carrot syndrome, which you mentioned, which, yes. you know, I'll, I'll be chasing this. Ca- how, how do you shift from always chasing the carrot of, of future enlightenment to actually accepting it now, and, um, right. You know, I I could give an answer to that, but let let me have you respond to it.
1: Well, so after I after I realized that, um, so now this was a new concept in my head. My new concept was, <laughs> my new concept was, um, I can be. I don't know if I didn't necessarily use the word enlightened. I I know that that word is kind of problematic anyway, but. Whatever the word is, like if you want to engage in the in reality as it's arising in this moment with as much awareness as possible, don't don't put it off into the future, like engage with it now. this is the time to make the right decision, this is the time to accept things as they are or to choose action that's going to bring about blessing as opposed to more conflict or whatever it is. Um, the time is now, so that was an idea that I that was planted from that experience. However, after a few months, I didn't know what that meant anymore. I mean, I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah. So so I was going around okay, okay, so I know I'm not I know from that experience that I shouldn't put it off, but I also don't really know how to do it now. Mhm. So so that led to like another many years of um, a much more intellectual kind of searching. Mm. And You know, just taking the form of a lot of writing and reading, lots of different books, and you know, college happened, and then post college, and I moved to the Bay Area, and I was just kind of in my head a lot for many, many years. Yeah, were you still doing
0: some kind of meditative practices during those years?
1: Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And And I was. And that was
0: culturing some sort of experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would do. I was continuing to learn in the Jewish tradition, and, you know, informed by the esoteric side of the Jewish tradition, mm-hmm. and I was doing a lot of exercises which um, later, as I'm, now I'm, I'm very much in the mainstream, uh, maybe not mainstream, but the, I'm in the Jewish world of, of, of spiritual education. I know a lot of people that are doing it, I see the uh, curricula that people are coming up with and so on. And a lot of the things that exercises that people are putting out are things that I had kind of come up with, assignments I was giving myself mm-hmm. in those years. Um, like for example, going through the litany of traditional Jewish prayers and contemplating the little pieces of it, trying to, trying to get at what it really meant to me, what was my intention behind this and rewriting them and then practicing them for many months and then before using the actual traditional words, that yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was doing that for a long time. What were you going to say?
0: I was just going to tell you a little story. I was once standing on a stage with Maharishi, shooting my mouth off about something, and and he he kind of interrupted me, and he he said, "Every day is life." He said, "Don't pass over the present for some glorious future," uh, mm. which is just to the point you were making. So I don't, you know, it's like we always have some kind of a, a, a discrimination, some kind of ability to. You know, be content to be fulfilled to have insight to have wisdom, whatever uh in the present, and I think if we appreciate that to the full extent we can, then it enables it to grow more than if we're always sort of discounting the present and um looking to some future thing for our salvation or something. It's just just the yeah. point you're you're making
1: yeah, 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 um. Let's bookmark that for a minute because I have another okay. story similar to that, that, but I'll get to it in a little bit maybe. So, so after many years of living, I guess it was my, uh, during my 20s that I was in the Bay Area and I was in this internal search, not really connecting with communities or teachers or anything like that, um, at a certain point I felt like I reached the end of my rope. And I think it was because I had um, written an essay to describe the experience that I had had, and to explain it in an intellectual way, and I was happy with it, I had finished it, and I was like, ah, good, I, fin- I finally, like, explained what that was. And then after I was done explaining it, I said, great, so I explained it, like that doesn't get me anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more intellectual what? Now, now right, I've explained it, so what? So at that point, I got very serious or something. I got very intentional. I said, look, now that I feel satisfied with explaining this on an intellectual level and realizing that it isn't really helping me, I have to go somewhere else besides the intellectual. And I had had exposure to many different teachings. I talked about that. But there was a book that I had written by Steve Hagen, which was, it was a book on Zen called Buddhism Plain and Simple. And there was something about that book, I don't know, I just picked it up and I just sort of opened it and I was reading something, and something hit me. It just hit me all at once that, that my intellect was constantly, constantly moving me away from the present moment, away from my direct experience, always, always creating this spiritual goal as a concept that I held in my mind as opposed to doing the only really thi- the only thing that's really important, which is actually connecting deeply right now to this moment. And he, he had a certain way of explaining it um, that struck me in that moment, and I've gone back and looked at the book, and I, I can't completely, I'm not really sure what it was about the book. I think it's a very good book, but for some reason, there was something serendipitous about looking at it in that moment. Um, which connected to connected in a Jewish way, surprisingly, because it's a you know it was not a Jewish book, and yet um, it was something that, for example, Martin Buber constantly talked about. he always talked about the path of presence, mm-hmm. and to him, that was what Judaism was all about, um, but it, but he didn 't talk about it in terms of the present moment, he talked about it in terms of your presence meeting this moment mostly in terms of other beings that you're relating to, like this conversation we're having right now, like it's an I-Thou thing, like how are you fully engaging with those in front of you? That's how he talked about it. And Reb Zalman also talked about, that's a whole other stream maybe we won't get into, but my connection with him was very profound throughout the years, and he always talked about a Hasidism of the here and now. Um, so whatever it was, uh, you know, Ram Das Be Here whatever it was, um, I made a commitment in that moment. And I said, from this moment on, I'm just going to do my best to stop that avoiding of this moment. I'm, I'm, just, I'm gonna see what my mind is doing. I'm gonna see how my mind tends to take me away from actually connecting with this moment, if that's the way you wanna describe it. And I'm just going to do my best to see that, you know, let it go and See what happens mm-hmm. without any kind of expectation of it,
0: and that didn't mean that you'd had to stop reading and thinking and writing and intellectualizing, no. right? But it, you could no. you could do it from with a different orientation.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, one of the things that it meant was that it changed the context of the spiritual practices I was doing because the spiritual practices always fell somehow in my mind in the category of a thing that you you stop life and you do your spiritual practice and then you go back to life like it's like these two separate things yeah so so this kind of crashed that down and made it made it universally applicable the practice now whether i'm doing my spiritual practice or whether i'm taking out the garbage whatever it is like i'm going to simply uh, be awake to whatever it is yeah i'm just going to i'm just going to keep doing that and mm-hmm. see what happens um, and something started happening immediately as soon as I made that decision, um, which I would describe as sort of just a subtle brightness. Mm. It just sort of started being this subtle brightness, which I could almost taste it, and it, only, it tasted like that familiar taste from when I was 18 from that experience. So immediately I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe this is this is like this is the right direction this is the this is like i'm onto, onto something here so i just kept doing that and kept doing that and then some crazy stuff started happening um i started feeling like uh the everything that i was doing all the elements in my life felt more papery like everything seemed more mm, just everything just took on a different texture
0: less solid and, less less yeah. thick so to speak
1: yeah less thick less yeah. dense and also like the feelings that i had for things the feelings that would arise in the presence of the various stuff of life um didn't feel as uh as much part of me they were just kind of they were part of the texture of what was happening right as opposed as opposed to like me and my feelings and this is a problem it's more like like, feelings would arise, and then they would just kind of dissipate, mm-hmm. and very intense situations would arise that would be actually kind of like hell for a few minutes, and then and then it would dissipate. Um, there was one one uh, little thing that happened that I'll say that I was going to put in, that, in the intro of that book that I sent you, but I didn't put it in there because I was just trying to condense and make it shorter and shorter, but to me it was kind of a powerful thing, which was that I was driving, and someone cut me off and i got really really angry and i was about to maybe just lean on the horn and curse or something and something said inside me this is the moment huh. like this is this is it are you are you ready to practice now i said okay so i just said okay here's the anger here's you know just i just opened to it and it was incredibly painful And I just felt this like well of anger and negativity, almost like a scab kind of dislodged from my heart and kind of just and kind of left like smoke. Interesting. And it all happened within a few seconds. And um, it had rained recently and there was kind of a sheen of rain on the road. And I just kind of looked up out out of the windshield and out my window and I could just sort of see the sun glistening on the road and a bird flew by. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden it was like the Garden of Eden, but it was just in traffic and dealing with normal stuff. So um so what I felt like over that week, it took about a week is that there were these you know, scabs of me that were getting <laughs> dislodged and thrown out mm. during that time.
0: Kinda of reminds me of Eckhart Tolle's story of looking at the ducks. You probably read that where He's sitting watching ducks and the ducks get into this little fight with each other over something, and then a few seconds later they just sort of shake off their feathers and they start swimming around again as if nothing happened. Right. Imagine if all of humanity could function that way, what a different world it would be.
1: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty neat. So. Uh, have there were there any other significant like watershed moments, or is just life rolling on now and living in a greater s- state of presence and uh, unattachment?
1: Well, yeah, no, there were a lot of moments. I feel like it's you know the true way that that it's unfolded me unfolded for me until now is um, very complex. You know, and has has had lot lots to it, um, but I think the main theme is that. After that week, um, it was a some kind of transformative process happened that was different from the first one when I was 18, because the first one um, was more heart centered, and it was not intentional at all. It happened spontaneously, and I didn't know how to get back to it. Mm-hmm. And after the second one, um, I felt that I had the I was given a key. You know, there was a there was a, a door that now I could open it, and knew I knew how to open it. Um, and yet, at the same time, it wasn't like me with my key knowing how to open it. It was like this is a gift. You know, this is a um, I don't have control over it. But as far as things go now, like I have this um, access to this eternal dimension, um, and now I have to work with it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I would say that. You know, there's the, there's certain ideas in uh, the rhetoric of spiritual awakening, and this is in, in Judaism as well. There's um, concepts of different stages of development and beings who are more enlightened, and then they don't have an ego anymore. They don't have a, a, what we call a yetzer Hara, which means the, the inner force uh, to do evil. Um, and for me, I would just say that it didn't really change any, of anything, except for that it gave me access to this eternal dimension. And then from then on, it, it, it was and is my choice to engage with that dimension um, more deeply and more skillfully as, as various challenges of life come up. That's nice. Um, and I, I also, just another little piece is that when it first happened, I, I just, let go of all the formal spiritual practices, because I thought, well this is it, this is all you need really. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I experienced is that life, regular life, was actually very uh, difficult for me. It was very, um, I mean, it's probably, that's true anyway, but, <laughs> but it, was, it was, it felt more abrasive because after having all of this, um, all these layers of me kind of be stripped away, Everything felt very abrasive, you know. So I'd walk into a restaurant, and I would, to get a cup of coffee or a pastry or something, and I would hear the people working there have a little argument, and it would just send me into tears. I'd be weeping, you know, mm. for 20 minutes or something because of the negativity that I saw there. Everything was just very. Um, it became difficult to function.
0: They're very sensitive. Yeah.
1: Very well, sensitive. Vulnerable. Which Vulnerable, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like naked or like a a scab that was ripped off, something like that. And so, so after some time, I started thinking, well, maybe this is part of why there are formal spiritual practices Mm -hmm. and why there are certain lifestyle suggestions or commandments, as you might call them. You know, in Judaism, mitzvot or commandments. What are the purpose of these? Kind of structural things that we have to learn mentally, and then practice them, and then do them, and so on. Um, and it started to occur to me that maybe if I did some of that stuff, that it would be helpful. That it would help me to live partially in this eternal realm and partially just in this crazy life realm that we're living in. Yeah. And and, and what I found is that that's true. You know, I found that, it, of course, you know, not 100%. There's a certain skillfulness. With which you have to take on these practices, because if you do too much at once, then it becomes disruptive in relationships and and um, interferes with other things. But if it's done skillfully, um, the whole purpose, as I see it now, of these formal practices, is not just to not just to reach the eternal, not just to plug into that realm, but actually to help to integrate that realm with all of the ordinary uh, ordinariness of life. And I think that that's where Judaism has, um, it's where Judaism excels. Mm. You know, I, I don't have a lot of personal experience with other traditions from the inside, so I can't compare it and say anything definitively like that. But I can just say from my own experience and from others that I know and talk to that one of the high points of the Jewish tradition is that it's, it's very high on that particular helpfulness, of helping you to connect what we might call the higher and the lower worlds or the eternal kind of space within which everything's arising with all the stuff that's all arising. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think it's a very yeah. important point, and it's, I think it's something that people in the spiritual community in general deal with constantly, and uh, there's been more and more talk of it in recent years, you know, words like embodiment and integration. Be, yes. Being uh, thrown a lot, around a lot. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine um, earlier this week, or maybe it was last weekend, who was talking about how he felt so sensitive now, you know, because of whatever spiritual development he had been undergoing. And he found himself right. crying a lot and stuff, just like you said. Right. And, right. and I said, that, That's great. I said, But you need to kind of counterbalance it with an equivalent amount of strength. And, you know, I joked with him, you know, how the ladies like the strong, sensitive types. So <laughs> go for both. And I think one can be, just uh, speaking simplistically perhaps, one can be very strong but not sensitive, you know, the sort of the macho stereotype. Right. One can be very, very sensitive but not strong, and that can make you very vulnerable. But I think it's possible and valuable to develop both qualities commensurately, and, you know, if you do, you can be super-duper sensitive and at the same time not be so vulnerable, which is n- not to say that you're not going to experience everything acutely and deeply and fully, but it won't be overwhelming or overshadowing or wounding and so on. It, you'll have the capacity to be so sensitive and, um, and function normally in a in, in normal world, in the, in the normal world.
1: Yeah, and and that what you're talking about is a major theme in Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of images and teachings that um, are aimed at explaining exactly what you were just talking about.
0: Great. Um, well, let's talk a bit about Kabbalah and Judaism. A, a friend of mine named David um, prepared some questions for this interview because um, he's really into Judaism and and sort of a Jewish scholar. His brother is actually a rabbi or something
1: and um, yeah. his and brother is uh Danny Danny Matt is his brother you know Danny who, um, yeah i kn- i know him mm-hmm. and um he and i have actually done some work together some some musical services in berkeley that i've led he's also he's done some teaching in those and he's um involved in a very major translation of the zohar which is a uh one of the most basic texts of Kabbalah from medieval Spain.
0: Great. Well, it's a small world. Um, His brother David lives in my town here and uh, is an old friend of mine. Uh, He wrote a nice little thing about you here. He said, um, Brian's main interest is awakening and he is very well versed in the Jewish tradition. His specialty is that he has reinterpreted all of the important themes in Judaism in terms of awakening. Throughout Jewish history, it has been very much encouraged to come up with new interpretations of the sacred texts. Uh, brian 's work is a perfect example of that, so let 's talk about some of these themes and and your interpretations and so on, just as we can spend at least an hour on this uh, you know and, and perhaps if you want to dip back into your personal experience from time to time to you know if things come to mind or you want to illustrate points, we can do that. Um, but you know assume that someone like me who knows very little about Judaism and wants to learn more this is a perfect opportunity for you to explain it. So David you know, wrote out a lot of questions and a bunch of themes and all, and I, you probably have that document in front of you as well. Yeah. Where would you like to start in explaining all this to us?
1: Well, maybe I'll just start with first letting everybody know that today is the New Moon. Mm-hmm. So the New Moon in, in Judaism, the New Moon is a Jewish holiday. It's called Rosh Chodesh, which means the head of the month. And the particular month that's beginning now is called Adar. Is the name of it, the month of Adar. And there's a, um, a saying in the Talmud that says, "Mishne Nichnas Adar Marbim Simcha," which means when Adar enters, joy increases. And the the understanding is that there's this holiday in Adar uh, called Purim. And Purim, if you're familiar in the Bible, there's a there's a book called the Book of Esther or the Scroll of Esther, and it's a story. It's a it's actually a very um, you know engaging kind of uh, uh, narrative uh, about the Jewish people during the first exile, during the after the first temple was destroyed, and it's a whole bunch of stuff that happens that I won't go into, but but. One of the interesting things about that book is it's um, one of the few places where God's name is not mentioned at all in the entire book, and yet it's considered a sacred text. And so the esoteric tradition understands that the special thing about this text and the special thing also about this time period that we're in is that divinity is hidden but it's underlying everything. So the rest of the biblical texts tend to objectify divinity, talk about God as a character who says and does things and people interact with God. But, of course, um, for, for most of us, um, the experience of what we call divinity or being or um, existence or sacredness is something that is underlying everything. So the question is, can we tap into that, and can we approach life and also sacred texts from the sensitivity to that? And so, when you talk about these different Jewish concepts, Judaism is a very, very intellectual kind of tradition. It says that's it, the intellectual stream is very strong. And so, likewise, even in the esoteric realm, I know many Jewish people who I've Interacted with and say, oh, you know, they, they love the the Torah of Awakening stuff because they feel like it's not just intellectualizing the um, that esoteric realm because you can study Kabbalah Jewish mysticism for years and years and years, and all you're doing is thinking about stuff. Yeah. You're not actually <laughs> right. You're not actually going into it. So my approach when I look at all the different elements of Judaism, which is you know, really a vast ocean that you could never cover in a lifetime, and so much there. But whenever I look at it, I try to simply look at it from the point of view of what's available in this moment. In other words, what what is the text or the practice or the idea trying to tell me about what I can tap into in this moment? And when I do that, Things tend to kind of open up and reveal themselves in a certain way, so that's how that's how I'm approaching those things. Um, so in his one, notes
0: here, David wrote, um, yeah. "God is the name. The basic name for God is that um, it's made up of the four Hebrew letters that correspond to the English letters Y H V H. It means being. So God is being. Right? Uh, would you agree with that? God is essentially.
1: Yeah, how um, would you define
0: yes. God? Let's spend a minute. I mean, we're, we're everybody talks knows the word what I mean, people have different concepts of it what how would you most deeply most profoundly define what god is
1: well when we say the word god you know god is a, it's a concept mm-hmm. right so well any one, word is a
0: concept representing something apple is a concept but that you can bite into one also you know
1: exactly exactly yeah. right that's right right so taking that analogy of an apple Apple is a word, it's a concept, but then you can actually take the physical apple and bite into it. Mm-hmm. So so my, my question then is, with the word God and with any religious or spiritual words, is does the word help you to bite into the apple, or is the word leading you somewhere else, down some other road? And um, my sense is that when we get into theology, when we get into talking about what is God and, you know, what's the nature of God and, you know, this kind of stuff, then we're kind of moving away from the apple.
0: <laughs> we may be, but it's, as long as we can really understand... I mean, we, if we want to communicate, we have to use words, and if we really understand... Yeah. Whatever. So, you know, there are words like God and enlightenment and so on that are very... Yeah. people don't like to use them because they have so much baggage but you know maybe we can make up new words but maybe if we define our words and we don't think of god as the old guy in the sky with the beard you know enlightenment as being able to walk through the clouds or whatever then you know we can actually still use those good old words
1: yes absolutely absolutely so like if we say that god is being or existence which the most sacred name in judaism actually indicates because the the name itself are, is a permutation of the letters of the verb to be, which is for those who know Hebrew, the letter, letters are hey, yud, hey. So that's the verb to be. Mm-hmm. So you put them in a certain order. Um, you add a letter vav in there, which has to do with a very uh, seldom used present tense of uh, of the verb to be. Um, then you have this name, this divine name, which um, gets translated in, transliterated into English in various ways. But if you look at um, the Bible, most English translations, I think, just say the Lord. Uh, you get it. It says the Lord, but actually it's pointing to this unpronounceable Hebrew name that means being or existence. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, well, if it's being or existence, then why why use the word God? Why not just use the words being or existence? Uh, I think Eckhart Tolle talks about that too, like God is a closed concept. Why do we use the word God? And my answer to that, um, the, the apple I want to point to and to that you take a bite is the avenue of the heart. In other words, there's a relational experience with being or existence or reality. Reality is also a good word because maybe the word reality is a little more all inclusive. The point is that that there is that reality is right here. Right? This is reality. Uh it's very rich. It includes everything that's happening in our experience right now. There, it's, it's our physical sensations, our sensory input, it's our, all of our memories and concepts, it's whatever feelings are arising within us, it's the fullness of re- it's all of reality. And the tendency that we have as human beings, which makes spirituality something that we're interested in, right? <laughs> because why does spirituality exist at all? Why do we need spirituality? Well, it's because we have this tendency to feel ourselves to be separate from the fullness of reality. We're not separate from reality. There's not us in reality, right? There's just reality. So, but why do we have this feeling of like, I'm separate from reality? We may not say that intellectually to ourselves, but there's a feeling of, there's a problem here, right? There's something, there's something not right. Or there's a, or this it manifests different ways for different people. Maybe it's a feeling of alienation or a feeling that I'm not good enough or that things aren't happening in the way they're supposed to. It's just these different senses that are created by the way our minds work that gives us a sense of separation from reality. Mm-hmm. And so if we use the word God in a way that's useful, then I would say, well, what, what is God? What is that? What's the connotation of God? It's a connotation of reverence, um, a connotation of surrender, a connotation of trust. Like, ah, you know, this isn't. We're not just out here like these fragments, you know, wandering aimlessly around. But there's actually some sort of greater coherence to things. There's a greater power. There's a greater reality, and all these things help to loosen up that constriction of the heart that that puts us in hell. Yeah, you know, so so the so the concept of God is good and useful, if you're using it prayerfully, you know, if it's inspiring your heart to open, and for those what we call midot midot means measures, but in Judaism midot means spiritual qualities that flow from the heart. So, for example, gratitude is a midah, reverence is a midah, trust is a midah, loving kindness is a midah. All these midot flow naturally when we take a prayerful attitude toward reality, and that's helped by calling reality God. Mm. That's my sense of it.
0: One reason I like using a word like that is related to what you're saying, actually, is, is that um, you know, if you just say being, it doesn't necessarily connote all the qualities that I would ascribe to God. For instance, um, yeah. in a single grain of salt, there are a billion, billion atoms, which is an incomprehensible number, and each one of those little atoms is a marvel. In, in terms of you know what it actually is and how it functions and so on. So to me that, that indicates a vast, unfathomable intelligence um, orchestrating and permeating every bit of creation uh, with, yeah. with no break anywhere. It's just omnipresent everywhere. And so mm-hmm. intelligence, a quality like that. I mean, mm-hmm. physicists tell us that in, in a cubic centimeter of, of empty space at the level of the, uh, of the vacuum state, there is more energy than there are... Than there is in millions of atomic bombs, you know, huge, vast mm. energy latent within every iota of creation, so that implies the quality of energy intelligence energy, mm-hmm. and and we could enumerate other qualities. And so, and if we kind of ponder what what is actually going on, you know, what we're actually perceiving in, 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 and engaging in, in in this universe, it's it's mm-hmm. this amazing thing, and you know, which is not just random billiard balls dumbly banging into each other, but is obviously something of uh, um, you know amazing complexity and, and brilliance in its design and orchestration. So yeah. that's the reason I like to use the word God. It just implies all that to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think that's uh, that's just that's another example of exactly what I'm talking about. Is that there's a certain certain qualities that we have. What what you were just saying. Um, there's a term that was used by Abraham Joshua Heschel, Oliver Shalom, a, a great rabbi who who's not alive anymore, and he coined the term radical amazement.
0: Mm, I love it.
1: And so that's just a you know radical amazement is something that's not. Just there all the time, in the sense, in the in the way that awareness is there all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's something that it's it's a fire that flame in, it 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 uh, flares up when you contemplate in a certain way. So that that contemplation that you just led us on of the atoms, the million million atoms and the grain of salt and the you know the incomprehensible amount of energy. Just as I was hearing you say it, there's a sense of like awe that yeah. comes just yeah. from just in becoming aware of that. And to me that's what that's what prayer is about, as opposed to meditation.
0: I think you can end up living in that state of awe more and more all the time, just the way you were, we were talking earlier about living in a state of sensitivity and strength all the time it, it kind of awe, yeah. be, awe becomes like part and parcel of your your ordinary experience you know
1: right right <laughs>
0: right yeah um cool so. Feel free to ever always pipe up if I'm not asking some question and something comes to mind, just jump in. Um, Okay. So, you know, one thing about God is that God is often um, entreated, you know, with prayer. Uh, Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and often when that happens, people have this sort of concept of, God is off someplace, and I'm sending him this message, you know, and I hope he hears it and gets back to me. And there's a there's a duality implicit in that. Um, so, what would yes. you say? What would you say about that supposed duality and God's ability to um, respond to prayers?
1: Um, well, as long as there's a sense of duality in life, which I think. It seems to me that there's, a, there's always a sense of duality as long as we're functioning in ordinary life. Uh, there are moments when that sense of duality drops away altogether. But in order for me to have figured out how to put this headphones in the right hole and to connect this stuff that it was all new to me, that was, man, that was duality, right? I mean, I, I, I didn't know. And then, I, you know, uh, Jerry helped me. and <laughs> Right? Like, there's, we're dealing with life in time, and so as long as that is present, then there's going to be the tendency to be a sense of me and the rest of it, like that's the basic duality. There's me and then there's everything else that's going on, and um, there's going to be concern that arises uh, whenever we do anything, we do things in order to bring about a certain result, and so there's always the concern, like I'm I'm not in control um Therefore, you know, I hope that this works, <laughs> right? And um, that situation that we all find ourselves in is potentially constricting. In other words, it, it's it, it's a it's constricting to those midot we were talking about before the uh, meet of awe, of gratitude, of trust of just open-heartedness of of connectedness all those things tend to get constricted the more the mind is concerned about how things are going to work out mm-hmm. and so when you pray you say god or hashem hashem is one of the hebrew things that we say as a very casual way of talking about god it literally means the name mm-hmm. referring to that name that we were talking about the name that means existence or reality and so it's it's kind of funny because if you said, hey, reality, you know, it would sound strange.
0: Too impersonal.
1: But, yeah, it sounds very impersonal. But you say, ah. hey, Hashem, you know, it sounds very sounds very personal. Mm-hmm. And yet the word Hashem means the name that means reality that we can't pronounce. Mm. But we say Hashem, you know, like Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof, like, please, you know, help me out, you know, help this uh, thing that I'm trying to do work out, help this person to, you know, not be judgmental of me or what I'm, you know. Whatever it is, like whatever is heavy on your heart that you put out in a prayer helps to really internalize the fact that you're not in control mm-hmm. and, that you're, and that you're surrendering the control to that which is beyond you. Now of course that only works if, if your prayer is really prayerful, because prayer can also be graspy like, oh God, please, blah, 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 right? right. Then, then that's not actually a real prayer. It's just a. It's more like a demand,
0: almost, or a a desperation.
1: Yes, desperate—an expression of desperation. Yeah. And um, the the tendency we have to grab after things,
0: Mm.
1: right? To to insist on things, to want to control things, those those are basic ego qualities. That it's part of the spiritual work to to relax those qualities, and prayer very much helps you do that. In my experience, if you're, if, it, if you're able to do it, of course, some people can't handle the word God and they don't want to deal with that at all. But Judaism, yeah, Judaism is a, is a theocentric path. It uses that concept of God. It's filled with prayers. It's very dualistic in that sense. And yet there's also the awareness that as I pray for, as I pray for what I need, it's actually not even me praying. It's like God doing its own process, because really, there's only God. So God is praying to itself in this form. Hmm. Um, you know. So Judaism actually
0: recognizes own? that that there's only God, and that and although we may think that we're separate from God, we're we're only God playing hide and seek with Himself. God, rec- I mean, Judaism recognizes that kind of a notion.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, there's different. I would I would qualify that by saying there's different streams, of course, of Judaism, different right. streams of Jewish thought. Um, like any tradition, right? It's very complicated. There's no just sure. Judaism or Buddhism or whatever Christianity, or whatever. Um,
0: yeah.
1: But the, but the stream that I'm talking about is the stream that comes from. Um, Kabbalah, which itself has different streams, but nevertheless, there is a basic theme in Kabbalah of this uh, non duality notion. Mm -hmm. What we, and what's called in Hebrew, sometimes referred to as achdut, which means oneness. It's referring to the basic oneness of all reality. And then that comes through different Hasidic teachings, of which there are many lineages. And um, the particular stream that I've studied more than others is the Lineage that comes from uh, Chabad, um, and the the basic text of Chabad, which is called the Tanya. So, in in my um, uh, book that you read, some of it makes some it makes some reference to the Tanya, which is also which is available in many translations, and people can can check that out. Um, okay. But but that's very clear in the stream of Hasidic teaching that we're not talking about God creating the universe and then these are two different things. But rather we're talking about this one reality, which then appears through a and it goes and there's lots of very fancy, very intellectual language for explaining how it can appear to be not not all one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. But but that's the basic but that's the basic premise, you know, that we're there's a purpose for for feeling like we're not all one. It's not like it's not like duality is the enemy. And I guess that's one of the hallmarks of hallmarks of Jewish spirituality that is different from some forms of Eastern spirituality that emphasize transcendence and you know the idea and the goal of this human life is to is to transcend it and then kind of disentangle yourself from it. Um, a major theme in Judaism is that Yes, you should transcend it and disentangle yourself from it, but not for the purpose simply of realizing it, but for the purpose of then bringing that transcendence into ordinary, mundane, gritty existence.
0: Yeah. Well, like you say, I mean, there's different streams, and and some streams of Eastern thinking say just that as well. I mean, even even in the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna says to Arjuna, transcend, and then three verses later he says, establish in being, go and fight this battle, you know, perform action. Um, exactly. Yeah. Related to all this, I think, uh, there's a fellow named Mark from Santa Clara who asks, you know, you talked earlier about how you had this shift where you finally were kind of like residing in presence and functioning from there more or less spontaneously, But although I imagine you would agree that even doing that, there are th- times when you get gripped or drawn out. Um, so yes. Mark asks, what what triggers or reminders do you use to routinely fall consciously back into presence? Can you suggest any particular practice to make the noticing increasingly habitual? I'd also add maybe more stable so you don't get drawn out of it yes. as easily.
1: Yeah, to me, that, I mean, that's a super important question. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Uh, maybe there's two questions that are like the most basic important questions, and the first one is how do you get to experience it in the first place, and the second one is how do you bring it how do you deepen with it and maintain it more and more yeah and not not be like this yo-yo kind of right. uh, or seesaw sort of thing so so first of all, um, Judaism is chock full of practices to help you do that. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, as, as anybody who has any Jewish background is watching knows that there are certain blessings you say before doing different things, like before eating, there's a special blessing you say when you wake up in the morning, there's times during the day where you stop to do certain prayers. And so your day, if you're doing traditional practices, is just filled with these opportunities to come back to presence. Um, however, I'll qualify that with the, the big obstacle in that which is that when you teach this stuff in a religious culture, you're telling people to do it before they necessarily have the hunger for it. Mm. I mean, we have this exact I, I, I have this um, challenge right now with my own children, like how do you teach these practices and actually have them be real as opposed to like, okay, I'm going to rush through this blessing so I can take my bite of food, yeah. right?
0: Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks uh, for the grub, go <laughs> God!
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And it becomes a thing where you feel like, oh I have to you know maybe you feel bad if you don't say the blessing because you you think you're supposed to, but you're not really taking it as an opportunity yeah. to do that so that's something that exists in 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 jewish culture there's that there's that obstacle, and it probably exists I would think in any religious culture you have the same thing um, and and that that's also the function of Spiritual teachers, or really anyone that they don't have to be formally a teacher, but anyone is plugged in who's in your tradition and you're in their presence. Why is it good to be in their presence? Part of what's so good is that when you go to do the things you're doing anyway, you're coming to say this blessing, you suddenly bring a lot of presence to it when you're in the presence of someone who has a lot of presence, right? Yeah. So.
0: Like a, Well, it's kind of like a dog chasing its tail or pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps or something. Yeah. There's, there's that saying, some Christians say, well, what would Jesus do? Well, right. y- you kind of have to be Jesus to really know that because then, you, then you're functioning from his level of consciousness and you'll spontaneously act in that way. But can you really mimic his behavior and and have the same effect?
1: Yeah, well, I think that in, in to a certain degree you can in the sense that if you're... If you're behaving out of certain unconscious impulses, and then the thought arises in your mind, you know what is the I'll say what does the Bal Shem Tov do? <laughs> you know whatever it is, whatever the spiritual master you're going to envision, then that can help you access some more presence, and from yeah. that presence can flow some greater creativity and wisdom how to deal with this situation that whatever your situation is. Um, so I just wanted to give as the suggestion um, to uh who is the fellow who asked?
0: Oh, uh, it was Santa Mark Clara? Mark in Santa Mark. Clara.
1: Okay, to Mark is that that there's this whole richness in our tradition of all these different practices that you can do, but there's also a wisdom of how you take them on. Like if you're not already doing them, then you don't just take them all once, you know, you try one And it'll have a very profound effect probably if you do it with that type of intention, just with one practice. But soon it'll, there'll be a tendency for it to become rote. You know, so then you have to overcome that and realize, oh, this is my mind just being accustomed to it. It's becoming rote. And perhaps then now it's time to take on another practice to help to be uh, a more, a more fresh reminder. And that's how you work with it. So it's a lot, it's a process working with these traditional practices. But I'll also say that there's a certain practice that I developed, which is, um, which he can check out. So if you go, we'll, I know we'll say it later, but if you want to go to, you can say Torah it now of, if you want. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if you go to Torah um, what you'll find there is that you can, uh, download a guided meditation practice, which I call integral Jewish meditation. And the reason I call it integral, is because over the years, as I noticed the beneficial uh, elements of many different Jewish practices, mm-hmm. I realized that for a lot of people who want to just do something, um, you don't necessarily have 10 years to learn all these Jewish practices. Maybe you want to just try something that's from the Jewish tradition, but that's also very accessible. So what did I What I did is I, I didn't want to say I did it, but it kind of developed over time with working with people is to... Um, is to take the positive elements of these different practices and create something that's very doable, even in a few seconds. Yeah, so I, I read practice. those
0: instructions, and it actually seems a little bit TM-like in terms of its effortlessness and its simplicity. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's something you could do twenty minutes twice a day, or ten minutes twice a day, or whatever works for you. And uh, that kind of thing has a cumulative effect.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it can be. It's very, very powerful. One of the things that's that That is uh, somewhat unique, not completely unique, but I know that it's um, you don 't find it in, in some other practices is that it integrates kind of a somatic element you know there's there 's body motions there 's there's vocalizations there 's chanting things there 's kind of thoughts streams that you contemplate, and so on, and that is the opening to then sitting in silent presence for the open meditation, mm-hmm. so you can and that that opening, which is really the part that's unique about the IJM, the Integral Jewish Meditation, is something that you can also do throughout the day many, many times um, just for a few seconds. In addition to doing a 10-minute or 20-minute or even 4-minute silent meditation, whatever you can do, whatever you can integrate into your life, you can also, in transition moments, before you get out of bed, before you get into your car, before you enter a building, you can do this practice of um, integral Jewish meditation, which um, helps you to plug into all these different elements of presence that we've been talking about.
0: Okay, good. Um, and we can talk about that more if, if you want to refer back to it towards the end. We'll remind people towards the end of the interview. Um, okay. You mentioned the Baal Shemtov a minute ago, and back in the 70s, I think it was, I read a book about him and was very impressed. Um, he seemed like a remarkable saint, really. Um, he even had some amazing cities, apparently, like being able to teleport from one place to another and, and things right. like that. I mean, is, what is your take on him? And are there people like that, uh, similar to that in, in Judaism? Is, is there a sort of a history of remarkable saints or siddhas, you know, to use the Eastern term?
1: Yes. Yes, there's a there's a big history of it. It's not at all unique. Mm. He he of course holds a very special place in the history of Jewish spirituality because he's seen as the uh really the grandfather of the entire Hasidic movement. Mm-hmm. And just for those who don't know what what that is Hasidism you know today you see you know maybe you live in a place where you see men in black coats and black hats with the long, long braids on the side
0: and yeah. exactly
1: right yeah. and you don't know what's up with those guys you know like any like any real life uh, religious culture, it has its problems and its history and so on. Mm-hmm. but the forces that gave birth to the Hasidic movement, as I understand it was the the need for genuine esoteric Jewish spirituality to become available to everyone. Yeah. That, was the, that was the impulse that created Hasidism, because prior to that, um, the whole esoteric aspect of Judaism was considered very nistar, it means hidden. It was, a, it was, a, it was uh, studied by elite groups of people that were already at a very high level of learning. And all of that Jewish learning, which is really very much on an intellectual level, was considered the prerequisite. And so the Baal Shem Tov comes along, and says, you know, we or perceives, apparently, that 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 depth has to be made available to the peasant, you know, the the guy with his milk cow. You know, I mean, they, it has to be available because otherwise, this this whole we're going to be destroyed. You know, we're we're not going to survive because Judaism is becoming so there's this separation of the elite, scholarly type people, and then there's all the peasants that are becoming um, you know, assimilated, they're disappearing and so on. Okay. So there was, this, there was this flaring up, it was like a fire, a bonfire that flared up of Jewish spirituality starting with the Baal Shem Tov, and then many, many uh, very inspired, very plugged in rebbis that came after him mm. in his lineage. Um, But even way before him, like in the Talmud, for example, there's lots of, uh, and ever since then, there's many stories of uh, miracle workers.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, There's a a wonderful story in the Talmud that talks about, um, uh, it's off the top of my head, so I don't remember the details, but I think it's Rabbi uh, uh, Akiva. For those Jewish scholars out there, you might correct me, but I think it's Rabbi Akiva who goes around and he heals people, you know, he enters their home and they're, In bed, like ready to die, deathly ill, and he takes their hand, and they stand up, and they're fine. And um, and then one time he's very sick, and another rabbi, who I'm not remembering at the moment, comes in and says, "Are these afflictions dear to you?" And he says, "Neither these afflictions nor their reward." (laughs) You know, meaning that there's supposed when you suffer, there's spiritual reward that comes in that. No, I don't want to. I don't want these afflictions, and I don't want their reward. So he picks, picks, takes his hand and picks him up and heals him. And so the Talmud then asks, like, well, why couldn't he heal himself if he's such a great healer? And the answer is that a a prisoner can't release himself from prison. Uh, interesting. So there's a concept that there's a certain communal element in how this stuff flows.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, which which I think is is hinting at the importance also of connecting with uh, with others, not necessarily in physical healing, but in uh the process of spiritual development spiritual awakening that we help each other
0: Yeah like you and your friend when you were 18 there was a sort of a chemistry yeah, that exactly. that even made that happen
1: Exactly um, yeah
0: regarding like you know the Baal Shem Tov and and the in you know reignition of some kind of um, spiritual f- thing going on um, mm-hmm. It reminds me of that story of, you know, God and the devil are walking down the road and God sees something and picks it up and the devil said, what's that? And God said, it's the truth. And and the devil said, oh, here, let me organize it for you. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems like these sort of bursts of light that come along from time to time always end up getting dimmer as they crumble on the hard rocks of administrative ignorance and, and whatnot. And then it's time for a fresh one to come along. (laughs) <laughs> Don't we know it? Yeah. Don't we
1: know it Yeah. And in that vein, um, you know, the Baal Shem Tov didn't write anything uh-huh. himself. It all so it was oral. Only, yeah. yeah, and then and then the different disciples wrote things about him and quoted him and so on. But it's interesting that yeah. he never wrote books. Yeah.
0: A couple of questions have come in. This will cause us to jump around a little bit, but it'll be fun to ask yeah. them. Um, David from Israel asks: In the Vedic tradition, the world is created from sound. In the Hebrew tradition, the world is created from the Hebrew letters. My sense is that there is a deep truth here and that these are not just concepts. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I agree. I would also just say that if, if we're taking the biblical creation narrative, the Torah creation narrative, just on its face value, the universe is created with sound in that story as well. It doesn't say it's created with Hebrew letters, but in Kabbalah later on, it, as, as the tradition develops, it talks about how the Hebrew letters are the DNA of the, of the universe. So that's, I think, where that idea is coming from. But Sanskrit the- says
0: that too. Sanskrit says that its letters and its sounds are the DNA of the universe, basically. I mean, it says, speaking of apples, for instance, if it says that the, the vibratory quality of the Sanskrit word for apple, whatever that word might be, has the same vibratory quality as an apple itself. It's the it's just yes. that the the apple is more sort of manifest.
1: Yeah, and it says that in Kabbalah too, exactly right. the idea of uh the Hebrew words for things are not merely representations. Yeah. but somehow somehow they're they're kind of spiritual DNA for the things. Like it's the language
0: so, of nature in a way.
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as far as I know, I haven't heard of anything except Judaism and Hinduism where that concept, exi- concept exists. I don't know if there's other cultures that also say that about their language. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, anyway.
0: Well, actually, in a, in a way, physics says okay. stuff about how certain frequencies end up getting more and more concretized as the process of manifestation occurs. And I'm sure a physicist could explain that more clearly, but there's, there's a parallel there.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's an it's a interesting idea. Yeah. Um, in terms of how is that idea helpful, my experience is that uh, the chanting of Hebrew sacred texts, um, both the prayers and also the scriptures, which is a regular part of Jewish practice, both of those things, is tremendously presence inducing mm-hmm. you know you want to it's a powerful powerful spiritual practice and of course that exists in the Vedic traditions I know that TM is also based on this mm-hmm. with the mantras that are given but not but you know and yeah. you know it's just it's tremendous tremendous power so I would just encourage people to. You know, we have, this, we have this gift, we're given these gifts of these practices, and we can look at them and say, wow, that's amazing, amazing idea. Or we can do them regularly and see what effect it has on our nervous system, how it affects our consciousness, what potential it brings forth. And so I'd say, do the experiment. In my experience, um, the experiment is, uh, is very fruitful. Mm-hmm. So, the concept that the universe is created out of the DNA of Hebrew letters, is that literally true? I have no idea, but I can say that it's, that it's very, very powerful.
0: I wonder if, um, you know, if you could really go back far enough and understand what was going on well enough, I wonder if you would find some sort of you know merging or, or, um, or original source of both the the Hebrew and the Vedic traditions, you know, if they just sort of dovetailed and branched off of a, an original trunk in, in some way—just speculating.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I've I've heard some scholars say that that is the case. I think there's a, there's a mainstream, and this is not my area of expertise at all, but from a little bit that I know, there's a mainstream understanding that the Hebrew. Uh, lineage of language and the and the um, Sanskrit lineage of language are different that they're actually two different streams but i've heard other uh, scholars point to these very uh hard to hard to ignore parallels almost almost identical words yeah, you yeah. know in the two different traditions mm-hmm. so it seems as if the alphabet itself is really different mm-hmm. but but that the um but that the sounds. Are probably the same. The Hebrew alphabet is is really the same lineage as the English alphabet. There's like just like we have A B C, there's Aleph Bet Gimel da. I mean, it's like very it's very obvious the connection.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But as far as I understand, the whole Sanskrit symbology is that that's a that's a completely different system. Yeah. well, as I understand about it,
0: ABC. we're getting a little esoteric here. But as I understand it, the the Devanagari yeah. alphabet of Sanskrit wasn't Originally used. I mean, it was sort of a rel- uh, relative innovation. But anyway, um, let's okay. let's go on to another point because we're getting a little geeky here. Um, yeah, right, right. Uh, Dan from London asks, uh, "How is reincarnation viewed or understood in Judaism?" Is it?
1: Well, reincarnation is is a traditional Jewish concept. Is it? Um, yeah, hmm. yeah, um, but it's not. It's not emphasized or talked about anywhere near as much as it is, as I understand it to be, in uh, traditions that are coming from India.
0: Are most Jews aware of that fact?
1: Probably not, but I would say more today than ever, because Kabbalah and books on the whole esoteric tradition of Judaism have become so much more popular, well, have been written you know, for the, in, you know in the first place. Starting in the early 70s until today, there's tons of people talking about it. Mm -hmm. So I would say that people are more aware of it today. Um, There's a word for it in Hebrew. It's called Gilgul, which means like, you know, cycles, circles. um, The soul gets incarnated and it leaves and then it gets incarnated again. There's actually an interesting concept in Kabbalah that not only is there reincarnation, but that our spiritual DNA is actually not just one thing, but there's various levels to our soul, and they get disassembled and they may reassemble in different forms mm. for the next incarnation. Mm. So, so some aspect of me, for example, that didn't finish some work in some area, may kind of hitchhike on someone else's incarnation and not even be very active, but just be going through the experience, mm. there's, there's ideas like that in, in Judaism. Um, but the but the concept that I've heard about in in uh, Indian-based religions, where there's like, you know, an in, in uncountable number of incarnations, that the 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 sheer you know magnitude of it is emphasized. I haven't seen that um, in Judaism. It's more like they'll be pointing out specific things, like, oh, this teacher is the reincarnation of that sage from then, you know, mm. and they'll. Certain people will point that out, Mm -hmm. but they won't talk about it a lot as an important part of the teaching, uh, in my experience.
0: Yeah, I remember hearing that the Buddha said that if you took all the bones that you've had and all the bodies that you've occupied and piled them up, they would be bigger than all the Himalayas or something, you know, just a huge number of lifetimes. Right. But anyway, in in Judaism, so the idea is that there's a, um, you pick up where you left off, there's a sort of a progressive sequence, hopefully, if you do well in one lifetime. Uh, you just sort of were able to pick up from there and continue to progress?
1: Yeah, there's a sense, yeah, there's there's a purpose to the incarnations. Um, there's certain work that has to be done on oneself, and there's certain work that you have to perform. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of both. It's kind of both. Like there's the personal evolution of it, but then there's also some kind of role that you were incarnated for that you might not fulfill in your lifetime um, or in any particular lifetime, you know, right. and then. And then there's a series of lifetimes that would have to happen in order to fulfill whatever particular function your, your soul root came into being for. Yeah.
0: So next time for you, rock star, right?
1: I hope so. <laughs> My son was just asking me, he's like, Abba, why didn't you ever become like, you know, big rock star? Yeah. I said, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was lazy, I don't know. <laughs>
0: So, my friend David, you know, as I mentioned, he wrote down a bunch of points, and he mentions a certain prayer called Shema Yisrael, which I know nothing about, but (laughs) it, uh, you know, you you indicated to me before we resume the recording that that was an important thing. So, let's talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, so, Jewish folks who are out there watching who had any little tiny bit of connection with Judaism, of which I'm sure there are many who have had none, but still, if you had a little bit, you probably know this prayer. Uh, It's not really a prayer, but it's a a verse from the Torah that is chanted in traditional prayer services. So when a a boy or a girl becomes bar bat mitzvah and they get up there and they're leading the prayers, of course, they're going to do this one at the very least. It's also the prayer that a traditionally religious person will do their best to say if they know they're about to die. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll say, it, say it out loud. So once I was driving one of my teachers um, back from a, tr- a retreat uh, that he was leading, and I was driving him back to the Bay Area from Santa Cruz, and I was getting too close to a car in front of me, and he said, Shema Israel." <laughs>
0: <laughs> kind of a spontaneous reaction, huh?
1: so i I love that because it was I had never experienced someone saying it when they were really afraid they were about to and that was amazing amazing react, you know yeah, most people normally. would
0: use some kind of um you know four yeah. letter word yeah
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. it reminds me of um some of the I think it was Sachdananda's, um commentary in the Bhagavad Gita um that he was talking about the importance of keeping God consciousness, or maybe he called it Krishna consciousness, right before, like every moment, because you never know when you're going to die. Yeah. So we have, the same, we have the same kind of concepts, and, and Shema Yisrael is the way of embodying that. Hmm. So the words to Before
0: I lo- lose that yeah. thought of what you just said, the, the Vedic tradition says that the last thought at the time of death determines the nature of your next life, and that your last thought is usually sort of a distillation of the whole quality of the life you've lived. But, you know, there's stories of people getting distracted by some goofy thing at the moment of yeah. death and going off in that lifetime instead.
1: <laughs> that, that reminds me of another uh, little legendary piece where um, there's I uh, I oh, can't remember which... rabbi. One of the rabbis of the Talmud never dies because um, in order for the angel of death to grab you, there has to be a space in your consciousness to allow that to happen mm. and his mind was so engrossed with with the the being immersed in the words of the, the of the scriptures like his mind was constantly immersed in these sacred words and so the angel of death had to create a distraction to you know surprise him or something so he'd stop thinking holy thoughts for a moment and then he could uh, take his soul and wow. kill his body. <laughs> Interesting.
0: So anyway, you I, I interrupted you, you were going to say more about Shema Yisrael.
1: Yeah, yeah, so the words, there's six words, it's Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And the straight up English translation that you'll see in many uh, Sidurim prayer books says, hear, meaning this kind of hear, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the lord is one. Mm. And that that's it, right? So it's been taken in mainstream Jewish culture, you'll hear this talked about as as a creed. It's basically a creed of belief. We believe like listen up, we're telling you something important. This god, this the one god of the bible and so and so on is our god, you know, we're like a tribe of people who are related to this god and there's only one of them. There's not like a whole bunch of them, mm. right? So that's on the exoteric level, that seems to be what it's saying.
0: What about but, that stuff in the Old Testament where God is referred to as jealous and he kind of seems that way by, based upon the stories of his behavior? It's, it seems like a very yeah. petty, localized sort of consciousness.
1: That's right. right. Well, that's a different, should we get onto that? Well, or? no,
0: finish your thought. <laughs> I, I, I'm taking you off. but
1: Okay. That's a good line of uh, conversation. Yeah. So anyway, if we look at these six words, there's actually it's actually giving a deep instruction in the practice of presence and in the realization of the oneness of reality, because the the beginning of it it says shema. Shema means listen or hear. So right away, it's telling you the basic practice. It's saying if if we're if we're thinking of listening, not in the limited sense, but as a metaphor for being aware, right? It's saying to be attentive, be present, be conscious. And then it says Yisrael. Now, the word Yisrael is Israel, right? Mm -hmm. Referring to, referring to Jewish people, but the word itself seems to be composed of Yishar El. Yishar means straight. Straight, but also having the connotation of not distorting things but with, with ulterior motives mm. like a straight a person who's straight who's like honest
0: straight shooter who's straight
1: yeah straightforward person they're not going to they don't have other things hidden that's going on you know mm. who you know they're they're there with you and then el is the generic word for god mm-hmm. so for example um, in hebrew if you're referring to other gods of other traditions you'd still use the word el it's a generic word for deity Okay? So Yisrael could be understood to mean straight to God, meaning that if you're being very simple, if you're being attentive with what the reality of this moment is, then you're going to be making a a basic connection with that which is we call divine, the the divine aspect of, of experience or of reality. And then it says, Adonai Eloheinu. It sounds, on the surface it sounds maybe very ethnocentric, like, like this God is our God. Right? Elohenu, that Anu end means ours, it's a suffix that means ours. So El is God, Elohenu, our God. The word um, Adonai is a word that is often used in formal prayer when you see that name we were talking about before, which has four letters that's uh, not pronounced because it's considered so sacred, you don't try to pronounce that word. But instead, you say the word Adonai, which has a more relational devotional connotation because it's similar to the word Adoni, which means my Lord, okay? So you're calling this name of God, which means being or existence, my Lord, when you say Adonai, and we talked about before how the personalization um, kind of brings forth this relationship of surrender and reverence for all of it, for, for the, the majesty of being.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Eloheinu means our God, but a way to understand that is not our God is in some separate God that is ours, that we possess, but rather our own inner divinity. So what is our own inner divinity? It's the miracle of our sentience. It's the miracle of our consciousness. So when you say Adonai Eloheinu, the the hidden message there is that existence, being, reality is not something separate from our own consciousness. Hmm. Right? And this is something that's actually very straightforward and obvious, but you know, it's, it's not something most people consider, which is that in our awareness is showing up all these things that we consider external to ourselves, right? I'm talking to you on this screen, the screen seems external to me, and you're somewhere totally different, and we're different people, and we've never met before this day, except a little bit on email, seems like we're separate, right? And yet at the same time, How can I possibly interact with you if it weren't for the fact that you are living right now in my awareness? Mm. And I'm living in your awareness. So, there's actually no separation between that which we perceive as separate and the awareness within which it's arising. Mm. It's actually one single thing. Now, psychologically, because we think of it as separate, we tend to hold emotionally in our body this feeling of separateness, but if we bring to mind the fact that actually everything that exists is arising as one reality, and it's arising in this one consciousness, then there can be this this relaxing, this softening of that solid sense of me. and um, And with that, the anxiety and and stress and and fears and all those different things that are characteristic of what we might call ego can kind of melt away simply with these two words Adonai Eloheinu all of existence all of being is not separate from this divinity which i am it's my own inner divinity um not even inner it seems inner but it's really not even inner because it's inclusive of everything that's that's perceived right then it says finally Adonai Echad, again, existence being reality, Echad is one. So it's not ta- telling me about some separate God that there's only one of, it's reminding me that there's one reality right here, and the access point to that one reality is not somewhere else, it's, <laughs> it's exactly this,
0: Yeah.
1: right? So when we see it, when we, when we understand the Shema in that way, then just by dropping in and saying those six words uh, can be a tremendous um, it's like a key, it's like a key to unlock the door of presence and to open up that eternal dimension of reality that's that's always here, but that we tend to block.
0: Nice. I wonder if your friend went through all that when you were about to hit that car coming back from Santa Cruz. Um, Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Here's a question from Brian in Fairfield, Iowa, my hometown. I know several Brian's here, I don't know which one this is. Um, he says, uh, and this relates to what you are just saying, which is why I'm asking it now, could you talk about awareness aware of itself?
1: Yeah. Well, as we know, we can't have any experience without awareness, like the word awareness simply refers to the most basic fact of our experience. You know, our thoughts are coming and going, our thoughts are changing, our feelings are changing, our outer setting, our feeling of our body. Life keeps, keeps rolling on, and yet we only know that because on the basic level, on the most basic level, there is awareness that's there. And so when we say awareness, awareness of, is aware of itself, or, or awareness being aware of itself, um, as soon as we say that, right? there's the invitation to become aware that you're aware, right? And if it remains merely intellectual, like just calling the thought into being, oh, I'm aware, okay, I'm aware now then I'm aware, that's not necessarily so transformative. But if we bring it back to the thing, actually the Shema that we were just talking about, and remind ourselves. That not only am I aware, it's not not that me, my sense of me, has this thing called awareness that it possesses, right? but rather that the entirety of experience as it's happening in this moment is all happening within awareness. That means my feeling of me is happening within the field of awareness. And all everything that's external to me, right? you look out the window, the you know the trees and 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 the clouds and the sun, you know, as far as we can perceive, all of that is all happening within this awareness and then and then you can maybe go further, you can ask, well, am I not that awareness? like is that awareness something other than me I mean. That's maybe not how we tend to frame ourselves, right? We tend to frame ourselves as this body, and these thoughts, and this history, and so on. But if the awareness is actually the entire field of experience, and everything in that field of experience is not separate from this awareness, then that's a, that's a very radical invitation. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: that's, that shifts things, right?
0: And that relates and to the Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say that that invitation is present in the saying of the Shema, right? as well as many other Jewish prayers, by the way.
0: Yeah. And that actually kind of leads us right into another question that just came in. And this one also. This seems to be Brian Day. This is Brian from Norway. (laughs) Um, Right. He's asking, how do you see the relation between the expression, I am that, uh, Ham Brahmasmi in Sanskrit, Nisargadatta's book has that title. Um, and the name God, uh, and the name God revealed to Moses, I am that I am, and there's a, there's a Yiddish or Jewish, uh, Hebrew thing here, E A Asher Ehire or something. You can pronounce that. Yeah, yeah. So it's, again, um, just to repeat the question because I fuddled it up. Um, the relation, sure. relation between I am that in the Eastern tradition and I am that I am in from Mo- which God revealed to Moses.
1: So the name that he's talking about in the Torah is ehyeh asher ehyeh, and that that word ehyeh is another form of those same letters that we were talking about before, the mm-hmm. most sacred name, which is four letters, is a different permutation of that same verb root, which means being, and um, the straight straightforward translation of that name is, I will be what I will be, mm-hmm. right? So you, it could also be That has
0: a future tense to it, obviously.
1: Ex- exactly, yeah. And, and the tenses are a little ambiguous in Hebrew, so it's not um, you could also say, I am that I will be, or I am that I am, or I will be what I am, you know, all those things are possible translations of it. Mm. Um, but straightforward, it's a future tense. Okay. Um,
0: well, the whole point and, of it the, in the the Vedic tradition, though, is that to to realize that one's essential identity is the totality is you know the uh, all encompassing reality. So, um, is that what this conveys in in the Torah?
1: I think so. Yeah, and it, through a different through a different angle, mm-hmm. because in the Vedic thing, um, and I. I'm not sure if I'm understanding, actually, the Vedic... I mean, you, you just explained it, so... I, I well, that's well the I, idea is that, that rea-
0: I, reality is one contiguous, indivisible whole, and right. that you know we, we kind of misperceive it as fragmented, but right. the fact of the matter is there's only that, that alone is, and thou art that.
1: Okay, okay, good. So yeah. um, what comes to mind when I hear that phrase is that it's very interesting to me... That um, And I don't know if this is the way in the original, but in English anyway, when you say the word that, you're implying a duality in that very word, because that is pointing away from yourself. So for example, one of the things that, that um, came to me at, at certain points uh, you know, in my process is, I am this. <laughs> that came to me, and then I heard later about I am that, and I, well, wait a minute, am I that or am I this? <laughs> Anyway, and then, this, then they
0: actually say, "All oh, this is that." <laughs> there is that right, phrase too. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. So the word "this" to me, anyway, implies um, the fullness of this experience. Right. Right. Whereas that implies, like, I'm over here and that's over there. Mm. But that's great too because then what that seems to be pointing out is that thing that seems separate from me is actually something is actually a perception that lives in my awareness right now, and therefore it is at 100% me. Right? There's nothing in the experience that's not part of me because, because everything in the experience is happening in awareness, which means it's made completely out of awareness. And what am I except for awareness? Right? So, so I am that is completely true in that sense. Um, whereas in the, in the Torah, the context of that narrative is Moses is saying to Hashem, you know, I'm going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to try to free the slaves, how am I going to do that? That's, you know, that doesn't make any sense, and I, at the very least, when I come to the Pharaoh and say that this God has sent me to free the slaves, he's going to say, what God? Who, what, what God are you talking about? So what's your name? And God says, I will be what I will be. <laughs> that's, that's, and then he says, tell, tell the Pharaoh I will be is my name.
0: Huh, that'll convince
1: them. <laughs> now if you're not if you're not convinced that there's this that there's this non-duality esoteric dimension to the Torah, that line right there should convince you. <laughs> but there's there's something going on here. I mean this is a very cryptic little passage here in the Torah that he's picked out to, to ask about, right? Yeah. Um so we can go in a lot of ways. The wonderful thing about Judaism and the Jewish scriptures is that there's no like oh, this is the answer to that. (laughs) These are things to contemplate and to work with and to allow them to unfold. So I would just say, you know, what's coming to me in this moment about that particular name, which is different from other moments, is that the mind tends to always make this duality between what I consider to be spiritual, what I consider to be godly, divine, or so on, and other stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's, that's one of the basic tricks of the mind, the basic dualities that, that the mind creates, which then prevents us from actually um, opening to, fully to this moment and to that eternal dimension. So when God comes along and says, look, I will be what I will be, it's saying, look, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing that can arise... That's not already always me. Don't you don't need to know that I will be this way, or that I will appear this way. You know, yes, we have these ideas: grace, graceful, graceful, merciful, compassionate one. You know, the healer, the creator. You have all these things, but that all that puts concepts in our head that we want to peg God into certain categories and say, well, then this is not God, then, and so then that puts us back into this dualistic framework. And God is reminding us, you know what? The basis of this whole teaching is I will be whatever I will be. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to preconceive it because everything that is, is my name because is, is my name. My name is isness. Yeah. <laughs> that's how I understand that. Okay. Good. Yeah.
0: Um, I have the sense, and see if you agree, that there is some sort of global spiritual awakening taking place. And one way that that's manifesting is that, you know, people are not. Satisfied with um, just being told what the truth is by some intermediary, or you know, just by they're not so satisfied with dogmas or empty rituals or uh, you know doctrines and so on. They they're they're questioning a lot of those things, and they also are kind of getting more and more interested in every tradition in the the sort of the more mystical, esoteric, experiential um, aspects of their tradition. Right. Um, So do you kind of see that happening, and do you see that happening in Judaism? Is there kind of an upwelling of... I I know Madonna was interested in the Kabbalah and all that stuff. I mean, is there sort of an upwelling of serious um, interest in the deeper uh, aspects of it? And and by serious, I mean people actually want to experience it. They don't want to just believe it or intellectualize about it.
1: Yes, absolutely. And as I was mentioning before when we were talking about the beginning of the Hasidic movement, which was happening in the beginning of the 1700s, Uh, that's exactly the same thing that was happening then, of course, under very different cultural circumstances. Um, But maybe the root of it is the same, meaning that in order for the tradition to survive, it can only get so far on telling people what they're supposed to believe and what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Now, now, that does work if you have the means, if you have the luxury for a lot of um, religious cultural stuff to happen. Like if you have the money, you're being supported, you live in, a, in an environment where you're studying the scriptures all day. Then, maybe that 's very stimulating that can make you feel like you 're a great scholar and you know you 're doing something worthwhile you 're communing with these ancient teachers and you're that 's wonderful maybe you don 't actually need deep spiritual experience to sustain that that 's not to say that they don 't have deep spiritual experience just to say that the culture of that doesn 't need that experiential element to exist because there's enough uh, normative um, elements that just, that make you feel like you're a person, that you're doing something worthwhile, right? But when you, when you're back in those days, a peasant who doesn't have the means to do all that learning and to become a respected scholar, but you're struggling all day just to survive, and yet you're being told you have to do this stuff and believe this stuff, um, it's not enough. You need some real juice. You need something that's going to really nourish you. And I would say today we have a similar situation. But it's completely different in the sense that people simply have the freedom. They don't need to listen to what religion is telling them. Um, and then you add on top of it the incredible dysfunction uh, with, through which Judaism has been transmitted in this country. Um, again, this is not for everyone. Some people have had wonderful experiences with their Jewish upbringing, going to Hebrew school and so on. But many, many, many people simply leave because their experience growing up seemed punitive, you know, but I know Catholics feel this way. They, had, they went to a Jewish school or a Catholic school and they just felt like they were being yelled at and told what to do and it doesn't make any sense to them and there was nothing nourishing about it, so they, they leave it completely. And then sooner or later, for whatever reason, then there's a spiritual longing that is awakened. So in our recent history, I would say the late 60s, early 70s, is really when that Renaissance started happening in American Jewry stimulated a large part by all of the Eastern teachers that were coming to the United States and uh, teaching yoga and Zen and, and different uh, you know Kundalini yoga and all the different things that, that was coming to this country, and those Indian teachers were really they knew how to, they knew how to get those hippies, right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right, Because they were saying, because the hippies were already taking LSD and doing different things, like they were already transcending to a certain degree the constrictions of the normative culture, Mm -hmm. and they were open to other things. So then these teachers are saying, hey, you know, you can do this in a way that like our traditions are helping you do that. It's not just about taking drugs and listening to rock and roll. Like there's a whole path, and you can, um, you can really, uh, Reap the benefits of this path if you're passionate about it and you have commitment. So people started doing that. Okay. A lot of those people happen to be Jewish, and there's many Jewish people who tell the story. People who are um, like the generation ahead of me, people in their, you know, in their 70s or older or a little younger, who who were around during that time. And there's many books about it now. And they'll say, hey, you know, we were we started chanting um, Hari Krishna or we started doing, you know, various Sanskrit chants and so on, or Japanese, the Heart Sutra, whatever. And all of a sudden, those prayers from Hebrew school started coming back into my mind. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking, wait a minute. If I'm going to sit around chanting some other language, why am I chanting in Sanskrit? I I have a language to chant. So they started getting curious. And there were a few very powerful Jewish teachers back then, most notably, uh, Reb Zalman, Shakhtar Shalomi, who I had a, uh, a, a deep connection with, and um, Reb Shlomo Karlbach, who I didn't know, but but who I also have a connection with because of all the music that he created. Those guys and many others that were connected with them kind of created a renaissance of American Jewish spirituality. And, um, and a lot of what's going on today is the result of that. A lot of the uh, surge of interest in Kabbalah and esoteric Judaism comes from what happened back in those days.
0: Do you have a sort of an esoteric understanding that you're that makes sense to you of why the Jews have always had such a hard time of it? I mean, there's the whole thing with Egypt way back then, you know, and being slaves and all, and, and then, obviously, there's the Holocaust, and these days, you know, there's a, a rash of synagogue threats and bombings and whatnot. Um, I mean... Is there some kind of mar- i mean what 's going on? Do you have any sort of sense of of why it 's always been that way seemingly
1: well i have to you know I have to preface saying anything about that that you know when you start talking about that, then you potentially start setting off these triggers in in Jewish psyches so and uh, by the way, and I don't, I don't have those triggers so much, uh, for some reason. I don't know. I mean, why, I'm, not I'm not implying at all
0: that they deserve it. It just, it just seems. No, no, like, no. I know. You know.
1: I didn't think you. No, no, I didn't think you were. I'm just saying that as soon as you start giving a reason for it, then people say, starts saying, "Wait a minute. Are you saying that?"
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Like if you're you talking our, about karma our, or taking on, burning off karma or anything like that. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. So. I mean, I would just—I just want to first of all acknowledge that that's that—that's true, that that exists, that yeah. that's a, that's a hallmark of our history, and there's lots of different ways that you can go with it. I kind of—I—I—I I, I, uh, I hesitate to—I do have ideas about it, but I, I hesitate to actually get into that. But I do want to maybe just say something from a slightly different angle about it, mm-hmm. which is that. that there's a there's something universal about it. there's a deep uh, wound in the collective Jewish psyche that's there about being oppressed, about being uh, victimized, and of course, that's not unique. Many peoples, maybe all peoples at some point or another have experienced those kinds of things and because of that, there's a certain flavor to, to Jewish spirituality that reflects that, and it, it's a kind of a longing, a heart longing for redemption, you know, for an end to human suffering that I think fuels the, for example, fuels the tremendous concern with social justice that seems to exist in a disproportionate amount uh, in Jewish culture and that perhaps Jewish people, um, as part of their spiritual work, I think, I I guess what I want to say is that Jewish people, but really all people, should open themselves to feel the pain that arises from that collective wounding, because ultimately, that brokenness is uh, is is a um, you know, as a as a famous song said, that brokenness is where the light comes through. Leonard Cohen. And Leonard Cohen, yes, Reb- Rabbi Leonard Cohen. So. When we, feel, when we have these wounds, and, and maybe you've experienced this with other people, um, I've experienced it so much in the, in the Jewish world, is that there can be a tendency to to contract and to um, become too much on the what we call the, the what you were talking about before, actually, about not just being vulnerable, but being strong. Mm-hmm. There can be this sense of kind of overly strengthening yourself becoming insular and or or maybe just neurotic, you know, mm-hmm. and and anxiety-ridden. Wendy Allen. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. It's a stereotype. Right. right? It's a stereotype that, that comes from a real reality. It comes from a, a, a historical reality. <laughs> and then there's also a way in which you can consciously open to all that pain and let that pain become your prayer and let that pain become your empathy.
0: Mm. There's another thing which is disproportionately characteristic of the Jewish population, I would say, and that is brilliance. I mean, if you look at the percentage of Nobel laureates and Pulitzer winners and great musicians and and stuff like that, it just seems like, whoa, you guys have good genes or something. (laughs) What's going on?
1: Well, I would just add to that as a you know a kind of a humorous thing in spiritual circles that are also happen to be Jewish circles, is the disproportionate amount of Jewish spiritual teachers in non-Jewish traditions in America. Very true. I mean,
0: in the TM movement, yeah. the number of TM teachers was very disproportionate.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. So um, you know, I have no idea. Just seems I, like there's a propensity
0: toward excellence, you know, and uh, in,
1: in, yeah, yeah well there is a the, the the most obvious answer for that is that traditional traditional culture traditional jewish culture emphasizes the development of the mind mm-hmm. it it has always at least going back about 2000 years probably before that too it has its roots before that but when the second temple was destroyed by the romans there was a question, you know, whether the Jewish people would continue to exist. And there were different answers to the question at that time, you know, how how shall we continue to exist now that our the central uh institution of Jewish spirituality, which was the temple in Jerusalem has been completely destroyed and Jews are, you know, sent into exile east and west and north and south. What do we do now? And Different, so different solutions were proposed, but the, the solution that, that has survived, you know, if we talk about Darwinian survival of the fittest, the Judaism that has survived is the Judaism of the mind. Mm. And the, the early rabbis who existed both in the few hundred years leading up to the destruction of the temple and the several hundred years after the destruction of the temple did this monumental thing. I still want to know from histori- you know people who really know understand the history I'm I'm baffled by how they did it like how were they even supported to do this but they created the the Mishnah and the Talmud which are the the root rabbinic works of rabbinic Judaism which are if you study them you're learning how to argue you're learning how to have multi-perspectival thinking you're, you Judaism is not a religion of dogma even though of course there are traditional dogmas but it's really a tradition of arguing and of um, conversation. And there's a there's a phrase, um, a famous phrase that says, these and these are the words of the living God. And meaning that when this rabbi says this thing and this rabbi says something completely the opposite, and these two schools of thought are really like at war with each other intellectually, there's an understanding that this argument, this debate is for the sake of heaven, meaning it's for the sake of... The revelation of divine reality on this plane, and so when you go to yeshiva, a traditional place of Jewish learning, you're not just learning what to believe in and what the books say you're learning how to think as they think, and you know a big part of that is is law you know is, is so I mean it's no surprise that that Jews would um you know excel in in yeah. professions and like law. yeah
0: that's really cool you know nasagada said that the appreciation of paradox and ambiguity are, are hallmarks of spiritual maturity. didn't use those exact words, right. but he said those qualities of being able to, you know, not be polarized in your understanding right. of things, but to be able to accept paradoxically apparent, you know, uh, things in one mind, in one awareness and uh, appreciate that things don't have to be nailed down but the the and reality itself is rather ambiguous as quantum mechanics tells us are uh you know in, indicative of a, a certain level of spiritual development
1: right it's like in um, tevia and fiddler on the roof right. it said he's on right on the other hand right. how he can gets- they-
0: Yeah, then then finally his daughter wants to go off to Siberia and he says, there is no other hand.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, at some point you have to stop and make a decision. (laughs)
0: Uh, um, One thing we haven't talked about much, maybe we can spend our final few minutes talking about this, is music. You're a musician and music is really big in your life. What what would you like to say about it?
1: Um, Well, it was... uh I I consider it to have been a gift that was given to me uh, to even be able to connect the two things of spirituality and music, because it didn't really begin that way. Um, Not that music wasn't always a spiritual thing, of course music is inherently uh, spiritual in a sense, but when I was growing up and I went to college and learning and meditating and all these different things, I didn't really think of my uh, work with music. Went to you know I went to college for musical composition and I was on a track of um, composing classical type music and also working with avant-garde rock bands and so on and that was one thing and then all this spirituality stuff was something different and um, back in uh, 1999. Uh, I met uh, someone named uh, Dr. Avram Davis, who had founded uh, this place in Berkeley called Hochma and his vision for that was to be a Jewish meditation center. Uh, it's a synagogue now, but at the time it was started as a Jewish meditation center, which I don't believe that there were any that existed at that time. Now there are s- several throughout the country. Um, but he didn't want it to be... Uh, a place that you're going to do Vipassana or Zen or something like that, but with a Jewish twist. He wanted to really um, teach the techniques of Jewish meditation that exist in our tradition um, to people and have that be a uh, a place that people could come and learn. And, and so anyway, he had started that a few years earlier and I met him, we had many conversations, and he said, I want you to come and start playing music for our uh, Friday night Shabbat service. And I said, no, no, you should have me come teach meditation. That's, that's what I want to do. And he said, oh, he said, okay, maybe, but first, you know, come and let's get a band together. And so I did it very reluctantly because I wasn't, I wasn't interested in that, you know. But amazingly, it was like one of these serendipitous things where they bought a building right around the time when the band kind of came together and was ready to do something. So in February of uh, 2000, the new building opened and we had our band there playing music for this service and like several hundred people showed up and packed this place. And it was instantly like, oh my God, I guess this is what I'm doing now. I, <laughs> didn't, uh, I didn't have any preconception about it. And it took me a f- several years of doing it to realize that this was actually, um, this was actually its own art in its own right. It's really something very different from musical performance in general where um, where you can use the music and and speaking and traditional prayers and these different things that make up uh, a sacred gathering and use those things to induce people into a deep state of presence and prayerfulness. So that, even though I didn't have the idea at all that that was something I was going to do, I felt like that was uh, something that started developing on its own and then I realized, oh yes I want to do this this is this is really this is powerful stuff this is what I do now and um, and it's uh, there's nothing more fulfilling than than playing music you know with other musicians who are kind of coming from this intention and then looking and seeing the community there and people are just opening up and people are Crying and people are joyful, and people are letting go of stuff, and they're dancing, and it's just such yeah. a wonderful thing. Yeah. yeah.
0: And it's certainly a universal phenomenon, you know, kirtans and bhajans and yes. Native American ch- chants. And Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead wrote a book called Drumming at the Edge of Madness, which is about rhythms in all the different cultures as a spiritual technique. Um,
1: yeah. 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 So one of our singers, uh, Jeanette Ferber, uh, sings regularly with um, with uh, uh, f- is it Phil Lesh? I think it's Phil right. Lesh. She was with the Grateful oh, Dead. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Cool.
1: So she does work with those guys. That's neat. And uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. righty, well, this has been a great conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot, and I, I hope that listeners and viewers feel the same. Um, I'll of course be creating a page for you on that Gap. Uh, about your, with your bio and link to your website and all, but you want to just say what, verbally what your website is again?
1: Okay, so the website is torahofawakening.com, mm-hmm. Torah is T-O-R-A-H of Awakening. And some resources that you can get there uh, is that I teach a practice called Integral Jewish Meditation, and when you go to torahofawakening.com, There'll be a button right there that says um, something like "Get the free uh, med- guided meditations," and it will teach you a special practice which is rooted in traditional Jewish practices, but which is also very accessible for anybody to learn in 25 minutes. And you can use it both to meditate every day, you know, as, however it works for you. But you can also use it briefly at different times throughout the day in order to cultivate. Greater presence and connect with um, those inner resources of peace and creativity and open-heartedness and all those positive qualities. Um, so,
0: and obviously, you don't care if people are Jewish or not. They can do learn that, and you know, right? I mean, it's not just, ab- yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
1: absolutely. This is uh, an open gift to anybody that wants to uh, partake.
0: Yeah, um, and you have some other ongoing things, don't you? Like you, some kind of regular membership thing where you provide songs or something online?
1: Yeah, so um, for those who want to go deeper, if, if you've tried the Integral Jewish Meditation it's working for you and you want more, um, what I do is I put out a new teaching every week both in video form and in written form that contains a new chant that takes a piece of Jewish sacred text from the traditional prayers, but mm-hmm. a little piece that anyone can learn and uh, teaches it in a melody and then does a new guided meditation. So you get this practice weekly, uh, usually on Mondays. Um, that's about between 20 and 30 minutes long. And for a monthly contribution that you can sign up to make, you can um, you can become a, a member of Tour of Awakening and receive these instructions every week. As part of that, you can also do some one-on-one guidance with me. I allow you know the the members can. Just click on something and schedule 20-minute calls with me, which are free. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do longer, it's on a donation basis for, for members. Um, when you download the free guided meditations, you'll also then be on my list, and I'll send you a brief uh, teaching weekly as well. So you'll just be receiving that for free anyway. But if you want to go deeper, you can sign up and um, support this work okay. um, monetarily. Yeah.
0: Do you have a job outside of what, uh, of being a spiritual teacher?
1: Well, I uh, when I was in college, I was complaining to my mother on the phone that I didn't have enough money, and she started singing, "Get a job!"
0: <laughs> <Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do>. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so um, yeah, so for many years, I taught piano privately. That was my main income, and I started doing the musical Jewish stuff that I was telling you about telling you about in 2000, that eventually grew into a job as well. So before we we recently moved to Tucson um, last July. Mm -hmm. And so prior to that, my main uh, livelihood was a combination of the work I did in the synagogue and also the private music. And I've been um, kind of transitioning to this online teaching so that I could connect with more people. And that's been slowly growing and it's been sort of a phasing of these different, different things that I'm doing. So I do do some Uh, workshops and retreats and different things like that that people ask me to do that are kind of like little gigs. Um, I do a little bit of uh, private music teaching and I still actually work at that synagogue in Berkeley, but just on a much smaller basis. I return there once a month. Um, We also have some other Torah of Awakening things that are developing there in the Bay Area and here in Tucson as well.
0: Great. Well, hopefully this interview will give you a bit of the bat gap bump
1: Mm. Bezrat Hashem, and I thank you for that very much, and I just also want to uh, encourage all the watchers that um, if you've enjoyed this and enjoy all the different things um, available on BatGap to uh, go ahead and make a contribution and support BatGap. This is a good um, week to do that because every week there's a certain piece of Torah that's read traditionally, and um, this week is called Parsha terumah, which means portion or a contribution. Mm. And it says, and it says, um, you know, li Truma Kol Libo. That every person whose heart is motivated to give, meaning if they're liking it, if they're enjoying it, they should give a little contribution, and uh, you should really get it get um, an influx of energy as well from that.
0: Well, oh, thanks. Yeah, And little ones add up. You know, it
1: doesn't have to be. That's right. Yeah, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I say the same for me too. Yeah. And Energetically, if, there's, if you like it and you support it, even if it's very little, um, that's very helpful.
0: Yeah, great. All right, thanks. So um, let me just make a couple of general concluding remarks. I've been speaking with Brian Yosef Schachter-Brooks, and um, this is part of an ongoing series of interviews. We'll be hopefully doing them for many years to come. If you find this interesting and uh, would like to get more involved, go to batgap.com. Um, where you can check out the previous ones and sign up to be notified of future ones. There's a, there's a menu called Add a Glimpse or something like that, at a glance, um, where all the um, various features of the website are summarized, so you, you can check that out. as a good jumping-off place. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Brian.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank A you lot very much. of fun. Definitely. A lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs>